On April 23, 2015, Yves Leterme, the current Secretary General International at IDEA, presented a seminar at the Ash Center entitled Strengthening Democracy Worldwide, International IDEA at 20, on the challenges to strengthening democracy worldwide. The seminar was moderated by Pippa Norris, Paul F. McGuire Lecturer in Comparative Politics at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information, visit ash.harvard.edu. Welcome everybody, I'm Pippa Norris and it's a pleasure to see you all here today at the Ash Center, the main area which really focuses on democratic innovation and it's a pleasure in particular to introduce you today to our main speaker, Yves Letermy. Yves I met quite recently when I was visiting Stockholm um, and I was able to have a chance to have a talk to him. He's been appointed as the new Secretary General in June 2014 and he's uh, got a background which is very much within Belgian politics, including being, uh, working in a variety of different levels, working as the Prime Minister, of course, of Belgium, and of course also as the Deputy Director of the uh, OECD and the work which has been done on that, which is really important. In particular, international idea, I wanted to talk about just very briefly. Many of us in Harvard have come across it all the time. If you're talking about work on political representation and gender, we're always coming across international idea. If you work on participation and turnout, international idea is at the forefront. It's the one-stop shop you go to to find out about levels of turnout and how they've changed around the world. If you want to know about constitution building, and some of my students are here, and we know that when we're doing that within my class, it's very, very difficult to find out about how to build a constitution, but international idea pioneered this area and have built up tremendous expertise in a way that's been very, very helpful for all the new countries going through that transition. And they also focus on many other issues which are cross-cutting, including gender, including conflict, including diversity. All the things which I love to work on are the things which International Idea has really pioneered over the last 20 years. I first got to know about the organization, indeed, when it was starting up in the mid-90s. I got an invitation to be part of a, a group that was working on a new report on women in politics beyond numbers, a report which really set the stage. And then, of course, it started to work on issues of electoral system design, another seminal report which, again, set the field in many of our areas. And on report after report, international idea is at the forefront of international attempts to strengthen democracy and to really push in this area. So it's a great opportunity to talk to the Secretary General. And in particular, we're going to think about what are the challenges on strengthening democracy in general, uh, but also in particular to think back over 20 years at International IDEA and to think about the challenges and the successes. What has really moved forward? What remains to be done? And so we really very much welcome the Secretary General to give us a talk. And uh, over to you, please. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Norris. Uh, hello, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, to uh, introduce my two colleagues that joined me here for a couple of days here in Boston. Um, we have in the front Dottore Massimo Tomasoli, who's not a Swedish, as you can imagine. He's Italian native, but he's uh, our representative at the UN. And then Marilyn Neven, who works with me in uh, uh, Stockholm. Um, allow me also first to, to, um, to share with you deep appreciation on behalf of International ID to uh, Pippa Norris. She uh, didn't tell you the most important news from uh, the International ID point of view of the last couple of months in the cooperation with Pippa Norris is that uh, she became a member 
of our board of advisors. Uh, we are an intergovernmental organization with a council of people representing the member states, but in terms of the content of our work, we have a board of advisors of 15 members from all over the globe, and we were very happy to uh, see, uh, to, to learn that uh, Pipanores was, uh, was uh, fine to join us, and we had a meeting a couple of weeks ago uh, in uh, Stockholm, I think a good start in that closer cooperation. It is not my first time in, in Boston. I've been here in different capacities. I remember, and Madeline remembers also, that we were here at a certain moment in the, uh, let's say, in the midst of the financial crisis, looking for people that still had some uh, trust in, uh, in, in, uh, in Belgian public finances. And I remember that I had uh, very important talks uh, with, with people that were ready to uh, to uh, finance uh, part of our public debt, and uh, afterwards I, I also also came to stock to uh, Boston, sorry, uh, in my capacity as uh, DSG of uh, of the OECD. Um, but it's the first time in the current capacity, and I very much uh, appreciate the opportunity that's given to have an exchange of views with you on democracy, the challenges uh, facing democracy, and the outlook. And I'm looking forward to the discussion. So, as mentioned by Pippa Norris, I came in April, uh, I decided to, to join International ID. I, my last position before that was, uh, I was the Deputy Secretary General of the OECD. And I would compare it a little bit to move from uh, OECD to International ID would be, I think, like all proportions uh, kept. Uh, I think it would be like moving from MIT to to the GFK uh, school in that sense that it's moving from facts and figures and exact science to reason and passion. Uh, I would make that comparison. What I mean is that uh, OECD's core business is of course um, providing in-depth socio-economic analysis and uh, policy recommendations, but most of the times on what I would call the policy of the rich, the, 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 the rich countries uh, in the globe, uh, and that's a bit easier than the work about democracy, institution building, governance in countries that uh, are currently still in a uh, another phase of development. But I think it's uh, even maybe sometimes more uh, rewarding. Ladies and gentlemen, International Idea is the only intergovernmental uh, organization whose sole mandate, the only mandate is to support sustainable, effective and legitimate democracy worldwide. That's important. We are operating in a field with lots of NGOs, with lots of uh, academic people, university research centers, but um, launched, uh, as was mentioned by Professor Norris 20 years ago, we are currently still the only intergovernmental organization with a global perspective that is solely dedicated to uh, promoting democracy. We are the only one uh, as an IGO. We are uh, also uh, subject matter experts dedicated solely to democracy-related matters, such as constitution, building processes, electoral processes, the interlinkage between democracy and development, development and democracy, and then what I would call the, the domain of the quality of democracy, representation, uh, participation. We are impartial, non-prescriptive, uh, and we leave the choice for a particular model of democracy to the decision makers uh, in the countries uh, related. We also try to provide a bridge between the different uh, stakeholders in the democratic and institution building process, like there are the, uh, of course, the decision makers, but also uh, academic uh, communities and uh, civil uh, society. 
And we are quite active. Uh, after 20 years of action, uh, we are currently active in 26 countries um, with people on the ground in terms of country uh, working on country assistance. We are uh, besides that working on uh, cater for knowledge uh, resources, sources of knowledge, uh, be it reports or be it websites we uh, manage in, in Stockholm. And we also try to develop platforms for debate, for exchange of best practices between uh, officials uh, of member states and non-member states and between all kinds of stakeholders in uh, the democratic uh, debate. Of course, since our establishment in um, uh, February 1995, there have been uh, striking evolutions um, uh, and also some striking, what I would call recurrent uh, trends. Recurrent trends, striking evolutions that all have marked the institution and that had an impact on our activities. At the beginning, uh, I would say we were launched in a period of time where there was a kind of uh, breakthrough of democracy in, in, uh, in lots of places. Uh, it was the period just after the fall of the Berlin Wall. 95 was uh, the months when we were launched were just the period after the end of apartheid in South Africa. Um, it was the period where Francis Fukuyama had a very optimistic view on free market, on representative liberal democracy, wrote his very famous book on the end of uh, history. So all the changes were seen as a positive, sequential, but straight ahead uh, process. And um, IDEA has tried to counter all these linear sequencing models of transitions and has criticized, in fact, one-size-fits-all one approaches. Instead, we have sought to develop flexible, tailor-made and context-specific uh, assistance. After 95, later on, I would say, the world has been confronted with uh, very important events, as you know, that uh, had a, a crucial impact on, um, on the thinking about uh, democracy and the uh, policy work related to democracy. Uh, in this country, of course, it's very difficult not to mention the 9-11 events and, and other terrorist attacks all over the globe. Uh, there has been the subsequent uh, political so-called securitization of the democracy support agenda uh, that followed the, the wars of Af in Afghanistan and Iraq. We also witnessed the Arab Spring that immediately went in, uh, well, maybe an Arab winter. And we are now coping with uh, terrorism uh, of the so-called IS, Islamic State. And, uh, well, during the last couple of days and, and weeks and months, of course, the migration issue is uh, really um, has a very important impact on the dem dem debate on democracy in, for instance, European uh, continent. So these are trends. Um, lots of democratic uh, challenges. Um, democratic challenges that are currently, I think, one of the very specific characteristics is that it is more than 20 years ago uh, a question not only of developing countries, uh, the, the challenges that uh, democracy is facing. Instead, the symptoms of disaffection with democracy, like, for instance, rise of populist parties in Greece and other EU countries, uh, and also, for instance, a very low voter turnout for the European Parliament elections. All these trends, all these facts illustrate that um, now the debate about the sustainability of uh, democratic development is also uh, very important within uh, the more mature democracies. And I can imagine this also goes for the United States uh, with lots of questioning about the quality of democracy the quality of democracy in, in uh, 
in lots of aspects. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the evolutions that I just have underlined uh, bring me to uh, a number of challenges and I will end with some questions um, which I hope will trigger some uh, debate. Challenges uh, where by proposing them you, to you rather, rather directly, I would like to trigger indeed that exchange of uh, views. It is of course very difficult to be exhaustive, so I will only um, uh, talk about a selection of issues and there are many more challenges of course um, and, and lots of these challenges are discussed, debated and, and studies researched, studied researched here under the leadership of Pipanores and other um, people here like the integrity of electoral processes, the emerging role of social media in the democratic debate, the crisis of political parties, populism, uh, gender inequality and political representation and so on. The number one issue I would like to uh, put forward is that uh, even in our work today, uh, it's not always easy to defend that there is not such a thing like a democratic ideal and that uh, each and every democracy has room for improvement. We are a non-prescriptive organization and the idea was not to have a kind of north-south uh, dimension, north-south dynamics that also the north could learn from the south but it's not always easy to, to, uh, to have this put in, in practice. Um, meanwhile, in, in lots of ways, the approach required now is indeed to learn from the global uh, south. Um, second, um, democracy is complex. Uh, we experienced um, in between since 1995 that um, delivering results in a context that is subject to endless change is for instance a very major challenge. Political environments and institutions indeed need to cope with the rapid speed of change as well as with complexity, complex change. Uh, I remember when I started politics and that's uh, already some time ago as you can, uh, can imagine, uh, was the, the 20th century. Uh, well, to give you an idea in terms of uh, what the complexity and, and the speed of uh, political debate was then, I used as a, as a starting member of parliament, I would, uh, my, the place my constituency was something like 100 miles from the capital or, or 80 miles. I would on Monday morning go to Brussels, uh, there discuss with the party leadership what was uh, happening, what the uh, most important political issues were. And then I would uh, on, on Tuesday have a meeting with the colleagues in the parliament and discuss the agenda of the week with the people in the government and then we would have uh, debates on Wednesday in committees and on Tuesday we would have on Thursday we would have the question time questioning the government about mainly the same issues as we had discussed on, on Monday and on which we had agreed what would be the position of the party and then on Friday there was the Council of Ministers meeting and we could go in the weekend with news with new measures we could canvas to our uh, people in the constituencies and, and on Sunday have a some television debates about the same topics. Now when I remember when, when I was leading the party, now the reality is that you wake up uh, on Monday with the headlines in the news, that you travel to Brussels, that you start your meeting and that people tell you that on websites and on Twitter and on social media a debate is developing on so and so and, and in real time you have to have a position of your party on, on the most different issues and on Tuesday the, the political debate is totally different and so uh, this is a, a difficulty for representative democracy and for institutions like we have been building them up in the, in the past. 
So democracy is complex, is increasingly complex and is developing at a uh, very high uh, pace. Uh, uncertainty is maybe the only certainty we have. Um, the circumstances in which politicians have to work uh, continuously uh, change. Three, um, the challenge of delivering on development, the challenge uh, of democracy, uh, democracy's delivery in terms of economic and social uh, development. Uh, it is very clear that the rationale of uh, movements like Occupy or Arab Spring uh, is mainly the pursuit of welfare for all. Uh, and it's uh, about the role of democracy, uh, governance by democratic institutions, um, the role of these institutions in terms of socio-economic uh, development. I won't elaborate on uh, that issue uh, because uh, I could make a reference to the, to the very famous book Why Nations Fail, where they uh, claim that uh, the difference, well, where they show that their, or they report the causal effect of democratization reforms on GDP per capita, you know the book, it's a good illustration of uh, that being at the heart of the debate. We at International ID have a department which is called uh, Democracy and Development uh, Department. That department is tasked just to examine the matter by which democracy and development may be mutually reinforcing, uh, how democracy can deliver on its promises and how development can strengthen democratic institutions. And this is why uh, we also advocate for democracy, Massimo, in New York in the post-2015 development uh, framework. Fourth challenge is, uh, I think, the, the, the change in global politics, in geopolitics. Uh, from a bipolar world before the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall to a um, uh, monopolar uh, world, uh, the American leadership. And now, in case you're an optimist, you say it's a multipolar world that is developing. In case you are a realist, you say it's a zero-polar world. And so that means that when um, things are happening against uh, uh, fundamental human rights uh, against uh, democratic uh, fundamental principles. It is uh, more and more every nation for itself, uh, unless it is sexy enough to be in the international and global media and attracts attentions and it uh, has enough and the sub the, the, uh, what's happening has enough leverage in the media to, um, to uh, have uh, big nations engage uh, to intervene and to protect uh, the people. So this leads back to uh, what I would call a lack of world leadership with uh, no establishment of rules of or limits and no enforcement. Uh, and in, if individual states refuse indeed to take responsibility for political crisis situation in, uh, or terrorism, for instance, in, in other places, well, of course, it uh, endangers citizens uh, everywhere. But this kind of uh, shift towards a, a world where there is no clear leader anymore, um, is of course very challenging for uh, developing democratic uh, institutions and democratic uh, governance. Um, the question is how can this be addressed? Of course the UN is there, we have uh, the G7, the G20 and so on, but uh, I think in terms of inclusive global governance there is of course still a lot of work to do um, to reach uh, a, better, um, a better result. Fifth, uh, democracy is challenged as uh, a model in the more mature democracies, in the traditional democracies. Um, and we are coping with first disillusions of democracies, of democracy, 
within the nations that more recently uh, came to um, the stage of uh, mature democratic governance. Last week I was, in, I was in Chile and it's really appalling to see how uh, Brazil, how Chile, how, uh, well, Argentina has some, has some tradition in that field, but how Latin America as a whole has to cope now with a situation where for the first time in, in, uh, since 20, 30 years, there's no convergence anymore between a boosting economy and an improvement in governance and in uh, democratic governance. And so you see that also because of uh, corruption issues and what's, what's in the news there in terms of uh, the behavior of some people uh, with responsibilities, there is a lack of trust, a, a lack of confidence. And so, um, for instance, the lack of socio-economic delivery and the fact that uh, the leadership seems to be not so clear on its relations with money, you see that this uh, creates the first disillusions of democracy in these countries. Uh, by the way, not only in Latin America, we saw last week that also in the Republic of Korea, in South Korea, that uh, certain events uh, have been undermining the uh, confidence by the citizens in, um, in democratic processes. On the European continent, we have seen that European elections had very low voter turnout. Uh, I think it was 34% if, if uh, uh, I'm right, if my memory is right. Uh, with even countries where uh, the election of a directly elected European Parliament for the whole of the European Union, which was only launched uh, in 1979, so it's, it's a still a young institution where, for instance, in a country like Croatia that recently joined the European Union, uh, there was only a voter turnout of 16%. So it shows that people have a kind of disillusion in, um, in, the, um, in the functioning uh, of uh, democracy. This brings us to the, um, to the fact that uh, democracy, of course, cannot be taken for granted and uh, neither can the quality of democracy be taken for granted. There are a number of very important uh, determinants that go further than the mechanics of elections or, or constitution building that have to see with representation, the quality of representation, with inclusiveness, the quality of participation, but also the bias, the bias by money, for instance, the role of money in politics, uh, legal money, uh, illicit financing, uh, capture of political agenda setting by, by the role of money, uh, and so on. I think this is, uh, for instance, in, in uh, in the US, it's, uh, it's a very important uh, issue. I won't develop on, on, on all of these, but I think it's worth uh, focusing on uh, the specific topic indeed of the use, the use of money in politics. We are doing anyway uh, by organizing, for instance, in September, a high-level meeting in uh, Mexico uh, on the, the, the global trends, the trends all over the globe in terms of trying to manage the role uh, and to control the role that money plays uh, in uh, politics. Um, I would like to, to end, as said before, uh, after pointing out that kind of challenges to democracy that we are facing, uh, to maybe um, have three challenging questions I would like to, um, to, to put forward to kind of spark the Q&A session. The number one is that uh, we think at the International Idea that representative democracy as it is organized and more uh, specifically the way we have been organizing or our societies have been organizing the interface between citizens and the leaders through uh, elections of a parliament, through uh, appointment of executive power that um, 
is uh, responsible to the, to the parliament, that, that is monitored and controlled by the parliament, and the role political parties play there, based on ideologies, that this is a, a development that took place basically during the last 200 years, but that is now challenged by what I said at the beginning, the complexity, the pace of developments, the fact that people want to participate in the public debates but are not always ready to queue at a polling station to cast their vote. So there is a lot to, to say about also, for instance, the geographical dimension of democracy. We have, built, we have been building up our institutions on the basis of constituencies, countries, nations, regional uh, institutions, global institutions. Meanwhile, people now have a more horizontal way of organizing their outreach to uh, uh, other institutions of other, other people and the way they want to participate in a political debate. So is democracy a geographical concept? What is the role? How do we organize this, the interface in the future between citizens and, um, and, the, um, and, the, and the leadership and the, and the government and the parliament? How can, what is the role of political parties? What is the role of civil society? How can uh, movement, uh, how do political parties try, have to try to relate to uh, uh, civil society uh, movements? Number two uh, question would be is, uh, well, I've been telling you, and, and this is uh, really very uh, important to International ID, that we are non-prescriptive. Uh, it, it's not a question of one uh, democratic model, one size fits all democratic model, uh, and that we would promote this in all places of the globe. No, there is room for a very specific approach, but to what extent is the way democracy is built up uh, solely an, an internal matter, or is there uh, more, uh, is there room for improvement in terms of, uh, let's say, monitoring the development of democracies from outside the relating countries? And then last but not least, of course, um, uh, I hope uh, you allow me to, to raise that question, is how you here at uh, Kennedy School see the flaws of the US democracy. Uh, we are um, uh, some time uh, from a uh, new presidential election campaign. Um, there will be a lot of debate about the content of policy, but the way the agenda is set, the way politics, uh, the political life is organized in this country, uh, what is your view on that? How do you assess the flaws and how can uh, the, uh, uh, these things be uh, fixed? So that's what I wanted to share with you as uh, introductory uh, remarks. Just to end, uh, you are here, I would say, as a, as a community, quite privileged, I think, because you're, you're uh, working or studying in one of the best uh, worldwide uh, well-known schools in terms of public administration, public policy. I know that uh, we just uh, talked about it uh, half an hour ago. Well, while uh, Pipa Norris was showing us the, um, the complex, the, the buildings here, uh, you uh, dream of working for the World Bank and you, you dream of uh, academic careers. Know that in Stockholm there is a, uh, an intergovernmental organization. We are 180 staff people, no more, so we are quite small. But we also like sometimes to have very uh, well-skilled and interesting people. So if you ever, ever would uh, think about joining us, you're more than welcome to through our websites to see what uh, positions we have all over the globe. Just to end, we are organized with headquarters in Stockholm. We have two 
representative offices to the UN in New York, to the European Union in Brussels. We have four regional offices, uh, Asia-Pacific in Canberra, uh, Santiago de Chile for the Latin American and Caribbean region, Addis Ababa for Africa, and we have an office for the moment in, in Tunis. So this is our, let's say, the framework of how we are organized. But uh, most importantly, if you would um, think about your future professional career, just be it a few seconds, think also about international ID. I think we can, uh, we can uh, use the best skills and these skills are developed here at uh, your school. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Eves. That's a very dangerous conclusion because, of course, you'll be deluged with CVs before you know where you are. Uh, all my students want to work for International Idea and the democracy community. I, I wonder if I could start with a question and then open it up to Q&A. When we think about 20 years of idea, I think that there are some people, clearly, who have been writing quite recently about a democratic recession. People like Larry Diamond, who say things are going backwards since 2000, 2005 and the world is moving away from supporting the ideals of democracy and then making your life much more difficult for implementation. There are others, like Steve Levitsky in the government department, who say, no, that's far too pessimistic. A longer-term perspective says there have been tremendous gains, and although one can certainly see a resurgence of some authoritarian regimes, and particularly Russia, the decline, and the pushback by China, nevertheless, on balance, over 20 years, tremendous growth. And then there are others, and I am in this camp, who see it somewhat mixed. So I think about what you do, and I think about, on some issues, real progress. And Mona Lena Crook is in the room, one of our experts on gender quotas, and that seems to me a tremendous revolution in the last period, which has taken over the world. Uh, the number of countries in 1995 and today, a transformation. Um, other issues, and issues like participation, and Mark Franklin is in the room, and, and we know that decline of participation has gone down in voting turnout in lots of places. So a mixed bag in some ways, and some move forward, some move backwards. I mean, where do you stand on that kind of broad issue, a recession or growth or just a very mixed situation depending on what you look at, which issue, and so on? And then we'll open up for Q&A after you. No, I think I would go for the uh, uh, mixed uh, view on, on uh, what's happening. I think uh, in terms of uh, the number of quote-unquote democratic countries, um, we, we are still making some progress, um, at least in terms of uh, the quality of electoral processes, the, uh, the mechanics of elections, uh, the constitution building, there is still some, uh, some progress. Uh, but I think the, the, the most of the problems we are facing is in terms of the quality of the democracy and then the, the, lack of, the growing lack of trust uh, by the people and, and uh, this is more specifically in the, in the mature uh, democracy. And in terms of, we see in, in uh, for instance, the, the, the summit of the African Union in January was very striking for me that not only leaders, but also the people surrounding leaders and more uh, also journalists, media, were really questioning the capacity of democratic governance to deliver the sustainable development uh, Africa uh, needs. And uh, we're questioning also the capacity to organize good debates and decision-making around uh, uh, the, the policy goals and, and the, let's say, also the legislative and, and the executive work that has to do with, with that. So to sum up, I would say uh, the reality, I think, is mixed. You, you, you mentioned uh, gender as, a, as an enormous progress. Um, 
but there are lots of setbacks. I think the trust of people uh, and also some, I think some, some issues we underestimate in terms of disconnection. Um, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago in Stockholm with people working on diversity. And um, at a certain moment, I challenged them and said, well, diversity, of course, uh, in terms of the ethnicity, in terms of the, the background of people, uh, the nationalities and, and migrants. And, and, uh, but the blue collar workers, for instance, where are they in parliaments? What is the part of these people? What is the part of the, so to say, all people are ordinary, of course, but ordinary citizens? What is the role of these people in, in, uh, in the decision-making process. So I think once again we make still make some progress in numbers, in the number of countries, in the mechanics of elections, in, in, uh, in spreading uh, constitutional practice. Um, but in terms of the quality of democracy, the mature democracies are facing lots of problems and um, not the least in terms of the trust, the confidence of people in the delivery and, and, uh, and also the uh, the way the agenda is set and the, the inclusiveness of the uh, representation and, uh, and participation of people. Yeah. Trust is always a problem. The fact it goes down can be good if it creates a kind of critical citizen, it has to be said. But let me open it up to the floor, please, first. And if you could say... Yes, we have a mic. And if you could just say your, your, your name uh, for us. Yes, uh, my name is Paul Bernstein. I'm a political scientist, um, not on the Harvard faculty, but um, glad you're here and glad it's open to the public. You had asked partly, sir, for our view of the situation in the United States and our democracy. And one of the things that I think is very much needed here, um, and it'd be interesting to see if a project from IDEA could be uh, developed for this, uh, is something that's needed in any democracy, which is fomenting and developing critical thinking in the voting public. If we tell the voting public we want them to be critical thinkers, that's already just too abstract for them. But what I saw in Czechoslovakia in 1960s under communism and led to the Prague Spring was a use of journalism so that every news report, anybody's going to watch TV here or turn on the radio or access something on their internet phone for news. There's a way to write the news that forces and leads the public through a critical thinking process where the news reports are not ideologically based, but neither are they superficial, and neither are they um, just chasing news. There's a way to go level after level after level, and the person reading it after weeks and weeks gets used to thinking that way. And the kinds of political advertising that are used in the United States for our elections, 45 seconds, very partisan on a TV, would have no effect at all because the person would feel already sort of allergic to it. Oh, this is one person, one party telling me one thing. This makes no sense. I don't know. So that is something that we have lost, especially with the rise of Fox News and other media, which um, without any shame will just deliver a uh, very partisan view of the world. And so the voters vote from within inside that, and they don't really see what the world is. Well, of course, what, what I will uh, uh, answer to your, to your remarks is, is, uh, is based on our work for, uh, uh, for all kinds of countries, not only for the United States. I, w I would say that seen from outside, once again, the setting of priorities and the setting of the political agenda, the way this is influenced by 
uh, not by voters and not uh, by voters that are equal in, in the way they monitor policy and, and they, uh, but by money, by, the, by, by lobbying, by uh, vested interests. But that's, uh, that's more specifically for the United States. What we believe very much uh, in is uh, uh, building, uh, capacity building within the society at the level of citizens and within the society. And we developed some, some tools, we call it uh, the state of democracy, uh, state of democracy at local level. These are checklists where we capacitate uh, citizens individually, uh, groups of citizens, uh, movements uh, with um, we we learn well learn we we uh, promote um, the use of checklists in terms of for instance uh, the accountability of public service delivery uh, what what is the state of play in terms of the quality of education in a certain constituency what is the role the public authority plays what were, what were the promises of the of the politicians of the of the people elected have they delivered um, uh, don't wait just to cast your vote to, to try to analyze what's happening. And so we developed that tool um, and we already used it in, in some countries in different policy areas like water, san water distribution, sanitation, childcare and so on. So we, we, in we invest a lot in developing tools for strengthening the uh, capacity of, of citizens or groups or social movements to critically uh, assess the, uh, analyze the, uh, the, the state of democracy and the delivery of the democracy in terms of uh, economic development and, and all kinds of uh, domains. Uh, we, we, you can find these checklists on our website. I think there are two kinds. There is the kind of general one. It's about, that's really about what is the quality of our democracy um, in different aspects. I think 30 to 40 questions. And the other one is then the, the tools we develop to uh, in a very practical way, uh, organize meetings, have people thinking about the quality of, uh, of the public service, of the service delivery and the accountability, checking the accountability of organizing the accountability of uh, political leaders in terms of uh, um, delivery in, in different uh, domains. Um, and I can imagine that also in the, in the United States you would have domains of uh, um, public policy where um, kind of improving the quality of uh, the, uh, the debate, the thinking, the analysis of what is now, what is the delivery of all these efforts, what have they been promising four years ago and what is now the situation and having a, well, an analysis on that and also a public debate on that, that that could improve the, the, um, the way the um, uh, democracy is functioning. Yeah. Our, our, well, what we believe is that when you capacitate civil society in, in that way, that political parties or leaders have to address these issues, have to change a little bit their behavior, have to take into account uh, the criticism that is coming from that kind of exercises. Yeah. Although, of course, it's interesting that idea doesn't work directly on the media and, and that side of communications. Please, some more questions, please. Thank you so much for your presentation. I just want to take an angle on the money issue uh, that you raise and some of the other issues concerning democracy. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Citizens United rule, basically that one citizen, one corporation have the same value. And there is a big difference between one cast a vo casting a vote and someone who actually can buy the politics and things like that. Uh, 
I wonder. And, and then we add some other things, you know. Uh, a lot of black people are incarcerated. A lot of Latino people cannot, mm, the majority of the minorities cannot vote, whether because they are not citizens of this country or because they are incarcerated or they are just illegally here and things like that. Uh, or they are minorities, they are like, you know, 18 and under, which is, you know, big thing for like the Latino community. And so I wonder how, in the discussions that you have, if there is any pushback uh, concerning the morality, the moral role of the U.S. in not actually addressing these issues and then going out and pushing democracy to all these new regimes that are coming about. Do we have the authority to just do that? Or should we allow all the people who are really involved in real democracy, wherever they may be, to really push that agenda, not us? We, 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 we haven't really done research, uh, as far as I know, Massimo, we haven't really done research on the U.S. situation as such. I don't remember that we, we have done research or analysis on the... Uh, what, what we know is that, uh, for instance, money and politics is institution-wide a priority for this year and next year. And there, obviously, for very specific reasons, and, and I mean, you, there are maybe good arguments, freedom of speech, and, and so on, and the, the amendments and the Constitution. Um, there, we, we see that there is a problem, that uh, people are not equal in terms of the control they can exercise on, on, uh, on uh, the government or on, on uh, political leaders. But we don't have specific uh, research on, on the situation in the States. I'm very sorry. The question is interesting because the United States is the largest donor in terms of democracy promotion, democracy It's not strengthening. a member state of international idea. Yes, that's right. They're separate. But they also, their moral authority can be undercut by some of the issues of money and politics and voter rights which have really gone backwards and so on. So an interesting observation. Please, Mark. Mark Franklin. I, I wonder if we do democracy a disservice by focusing on what it can deliver in the way of uh, economic and social benefits and even of benefits of, of political discussion. It seems to me that we forget that the greatest single achievement of democracy is to eliminate the need for periodic bloodbaths every time a, a succession is contested. Uh, and if we think of what possibly is the greatest uh, step forward uh, in democracy in this calendar year, uh, it almost certainly was the election in Nigeria, which for the first time ever uh, was without violence, or mm. almost without violence. I mean, this is Africa's largest country. And finally, I think after eight or nine violent transitions that pretended uh, at least started out pretending to be democratic. Here we have one that actually didn't result in, in, in bloodshed. Now, originally, and for a hundred or two years, that was what democracy was about. It was about eliminating the need for succession by, by eldest son, uh, and uh, thereby hopefully getting more qualified successors and above all, eliminating the, the, the need for succession by bloodbath. That's right, but it's only part of the, I put it another way. This is the fact that democracy is a uh, peacekeeper and is, uh, is organizing in a peaceful way the, 
transitions and so on, this is of course right. And you give a very good example with, with Nigeria. I hope that in Burundi and in other places in the course of the next months, we will see, uh, and DRC next year, that we will see uh, good developments also. And this is of course of utmost importance and, and it's an enormous uh, step forwards, but it's not enough. I can tell you that when you talk to people, for instance, like last week in Chile and Brazil, well, also in Chile and also in Brazil, you have now, uh, well, smoothless transitions and, and uh, the constitution is applied and there is no, no unconstitutional extension of, of mandates and so on. But that doesn't mean that people um, believe in democracy and, and are ready to support democratic decision making. Uh, people approach democracy also not only as a value as such, but also as a, I would not say as a consumer, but at least asking themselves, what does it bring in my in my daily life? Is social cohesion improving? Is uh, is democracy tackling inequality in, in Santiago de Chile? Are uh, my children will will they have uh, equal chances in terms of education? Is the social security the uh, is that developing? Do we have uh, uh, progress in that field? So. Uh, in my 20 years as a politician, I learned that people never vote to, uh, to thank you. And so people won't ever believe in democracy because they are grateful that it uh, brings peace. Whenever you repeat it, they will, not, they will say, yeah, you're right, that's right, we forgot. Well, we, we, we don't always think about that aspect, and that's indeed a crucial aspect. But increasingly, uh, we see that people, uh, not the least in mature democracies, they really want the whole mechanics to deliver what's in for us. Does it really deliver uh, progress? Does it deliver uh, good public service? Does it deliver uh, value for our taxpayers' money? And, um, and once again, democracy is a value as such, and, and uh, they, are, they are fair enough, they, they agree on that. But um, in order to, uh, to have a legitimacy and to strengthen that legitimacy, uh, we have to show uh, results. And what's your answer to that when people ask you, does democracy deliver? We had a debate on that, on democracy, on our democracy forum last, uh, last year, because Botswana, we have a rotating chair. Uh, this year, Switzerland is chairing, last year, Botswana. We had uh, a meeting in Botswana on the relationship, with the relation, the linkages between democratic governance and good uh, economic output. And of course, there it is obvious that, well, I remember that a Botswanian minister made a, a comparison between what they are achieving in terms of socio-economic development and what Congo is doing, the DRC, uh, with uh, the same kind of resources and that their democratic governance and inclusive processes and so on, that they make a difference. I, I refer to the, to the book Why Nations Fail. I mean, that's the whole of the... Of, uh, it. But that, that's an example that is easier to give than in, uh, in mature democracies like the European ones, for instance, where, and also in Africa, I remember the speech by Robert Mugabe uh, when he accepted his, uh, uh, when he accepted the, uh, what is it, the chairmanship of the African Union. He was applauded for the f when he was, um, I would say, at least very critical, uh, giving very critical commentaries on the, on the, um, what he called the UN and Western uh, perception, definition of democratic governance. You have to convince the people that it bring, brings better results. We, ca we can show uh, that democratic governance, inclusive democratic governance, uh, what it makes as differences and what finally then the output is in terms of the quality of life and the sustainability of development. 
But um, in some cases, it's not so easy because take the African example, you know that I remember I was recently in uh, for the OECD in a, I think it was in Morocco. We had a forum on, on uh, development of, I think it was renewable energy resources, uh, sources of energy and with the OECD. And there was a guy from the Chinese Development Bank or the, the, the vice chairman. And he was, we were on behalf of the OECD uh, talking about the conditionality and the conditionality of the World Bank and, and the IMF and what we do and so on. The Chinese guy just said, well, that the money's there, uh, that's, the, that's the website, that's the documents, and that's very attractive, of course. And then you have to, to, to tell people, well, no, maybe it's more sustainable if you organize it uh, this and this way, so it's, uh, yeah. Multiple actors make life more complicated, please. I really well. enjoyed your uh, discussion about the social media. Um, I was wondering, you know, social media obviously allows for like way quicker reaction also of what you were just referring to as blue collar workers. So I was wondering in how much does it maybe undermine the sort of representative democracy that we have come up with as sort of a political elite, uh, as a new way, uh, sort of a new agreement with the people uh, to keep the elite in power. Uh, whereas, you know, social media right now uh, are causing the public to demand for more direct control <coughs> on politics and more direct forms of democracy. And uh, that ties into the question of being non-prescriptive. Maybe, you know, isn't there uh, more of a movement towards direct democracy or at least quicker response to public concerns, etc., through social media uh, that is required today uh, and sort of is required in terms of the innovation of democratic governance to make democracy work into the future. Uh, to make it more responsive to like blue-collar workers, to make them uh, more included in the process? I think in, in terms of um, giving more possibility to people to have a debate about uh, issues and, and raising their voices, there is certainly uh, an enormous impact of social media. And in influencing the agenda of at least the debate, there is certainly an enormous impact. You can question the whole system in terms of is it real democratic, but because whose and uh, whose voices is, uh, whose voices are heard and and who is active on social media and so on, we think the most important um, at this very moment the most important challenge is for all people well the, the aspect of the interface between citizens and public authority where our structures, like we know them since uh, 150, 150 to 200 years with party, with party congresses, with all kinds of uh, meetings that are organized to have a debate face to face with people that elect other people to represent themselves in these debates. Uh, we think that there is a, an enormous need for traditional political, well, for all political parties to try to find ways to tap in that kind of uh, debate and, and uh, ongoing, um, uh, let's say, participation by, by, uh, by citizens. We have currently a project, it's called uh, Liquid Feedback, the Liquid Feedback Project, where we look into possibilities to make that a part of the functioning of political parties on a continuous basis. Some of the parties, at least, uh, we work uh, on in, in Europe already uh, take that on board and have uh, will be very interesting in France, for instance, the two main uh, contenders now already announced they have decided to have a kind of liquid feedback in the decision making on the program they will develop. 
uh, I think the one of the most important um, issues and problems to fix is what is the to what degree is uh, to what extent are people representative? Uh, I mean, what what is the what is the value of of uh, a vote through uh, ICT of of uh, the outcome of a debate, uh, what is the value of the, how can you improve the content, the quality of the debate in terms of uh, having people knowing what they are talking about. Um, but it's certainly a way to, to give more opportunities to more people to participate and so to make them interested in the public debate. Uh, and it has uh, anyway a very important impact on the functioning of political parties, governments, parliaments, members of parliaments. Uh, so um, it is one of the sources of uh, dramatic change in the way we organize these, uh, that, that interface between, uh, between citizen and, and, um, and, um, and leadership and politicians. I personally believe that we will need political parties or something like that anyway. And we will uh, maybe, maybe that um, the programmatic aspect of political parties can be helped through uh, through social media uh, debate, and so we we will still need parties in the future, but a different kind of political party is differently organized. I have three grown-up children. When I see how they think, uh, how they discuss, and how they try to influence to a certain extent what is decided on their behalf by politicians, it is not linked to a level of governance. We as professional politicians, we used to think in terms of municipalities, counties, uh, constituencies, regions, Europe. Uh, this is all mixed up. They are less interested. Well, my son, my, my second son, he said, yeah, dad, I will vote for your friends and no problem. Last European election. But he said, but what the hell, I, I just launched my own little company by filing all kinds of stuff through Internet. Why do I have to queue at, at, my, at the school where I was 20 years ago? To, to cast my vote. And, and they only ask me every four to five years my opinion. Um, well, it's Thomas, it's a little bit more complicated, nuance, and you try to, uh, to argue, but there's a part of truth in it. Eh? What, what, uh, in between, he's very interested on taxation policy, on youth policy, and he wants to raise his voice and participates in debates. So uh, I think parties will have to adapt to reality. It's, uh, uh, and young people, when you ask them in Europe, they're interested in politics. That's uh, that's been going up. It's yeah. through voting turnout that things have been going down. So it, uh, just you know, yeah. new channels basically. Please. Hello, uh, I'm a student here at ASCAS. I just wonder. We started out the discussion talking about if we should be optimistic or pessimistic about the future of democracy, and you talked about your your stories from the African Union. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit about do you? They, when they talk about democracy, see any alternatives to democracy? Or is it just, just a sequential story that they will have governance in the first place and then develop democracy eventually? Well, of course, at the, at the summit of the African Union, you meet the leaders. You meet the people in charge. And, uh, well, happily now, luckily, the, the most of them are, have a democratic legitimacy. But they are uh, approaching the issue when you discuss uh, with them, lots of them are, are approaching the issue in terms of how can, how can I continue to, to be in power? What are the next elections? When are the next elections? How do we organize ourselves uh, for these elections? And uh, of course, they, are also, uh, they also want to discuss about uh, 
constitutional provisions, uh, maximum two terms, uh, and so on and so on. So these people are not uh, the best people to uh, to talk to. I think the best people to talk to or talk with are the people that, for instance, in Burkina Faso, uh, just said, well, we don't agree with the unconstitutional extension of mandate. We don't accept that anymore. And I think the hope should be that in in other, I mentioned Burundi, uh, DRC, uh, that, that in also the other countries, and let's hope in a peaceful way, at a certain moment can say, well, no, uh, this, 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 uh, this won't fly. We, we don't agree. We protest, and our protest is so important that, well, who wants to uh, violate the Constitution is simply uh, uh, has no legitimacy anymore and, and uh, well, has to, has to be ousted. Uh, but when you, when you see the, the reporting on projects we have in, in lots of African countries in terms of, for instance, that state of democracy discussion, um, you feel a kind of uh, progress uh, in terms of the, um, the way people enga are engaged in the debate about the future of their country, about the democratic future of their country, of how they can uh, how they can influence that future. So I think there is improvement, there is a, a positive development. But to come back to your question, I think at the African Union, you, you talk to leaders that uh, the number one is how can we, how can we stay uh, in power? Uh, but once again, the example of Burkina Faso is a very good, uh, is a very good example. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm a Dilligerman master's student here at Harvard and Fletcher School. You're a photographer also. <laughs> I was running from a class, so I apologize. I missed the beginning of the speech, and uh, I don't know if you mentioned about this. But I want to ask about Southeastern Europe, and especially Bosnia and Herzegovina as a transitional democracy, where uh, there are democratic institutions, but you cannot for presidency unless you're a Croat, Serb, or Bosniak in ethnicity. So I was my thesis is also about Bosnia and the exclusion of um, Jewish and Roma communities in, in this process. And I was wondering, although you have the democratic institutions and a lot of negotiations going on with the European Union and other organizations, how are we going to deal with the memory of the past and uh, the fear that the state uh, fears from the citizens, the citizens are fearing from each other, and all the institutions are actually, although we have the Format, we, the content is not actually as democratic as that we want to be. So how do we deal with this? Thank you. It's, yeah, it's an excellent question, but it's not so easy to answer it in, in full respect with the, to the, well, with enough respect to the problem, because we, we cannot, uh, I mean, the way it functions is not that we tell the people in Bosnia how they would have to, should solve their problems. I mean, what we did, uh, I think Massimo, some 10 years ago, there was a project about reconciliation with, uh, I think we published a report on the role of truth commissions, for instance, uh, and, and all kinds of reconciliation processes. Uh, but that's only what I would call best practices that we can offer. And uh, the, uh, I mean, the, the, the core of the, the most important part of the work uh, has to be done by, uh, by the people in, for instance, in, in Bosnia and Bosnia-Herzegovina, and we can only or external people can only facilitate what uh, what should be done. We are now, uh, together with other colleagues, looking into possibilities to engage in, well, to, to answer positively on some uh, demands by 
um, all kinds of organizations, institutions, people in the Ukraine, for instance. How do you, after what happened there uh, some, until some, some weeks or months ago, how do you, for instance, organize the debate about the changes to the constitutions that have to be uh, decided? Um, well, we, we, we can't agree well, it, it's, it's these people have to agree amongst themselves. What we can do is to offer them tools to show them what uh, functioned in other places and the best practices and in South Africa, in Chile and in, in whatever other parts of the globe. But at the end, it's uh, in the country itself that it has to, it has to be um, implemented and, and lead to, uh, to successes. Uh, and this differs from, from the one case to the other. Well, our role is to provide platforms for exchange of best practices and, and to have sources of knowledge and to help to facilitate. But we, we can't live together in the place of the people uh, that have to do it on a daily basis in the countries uh, related. Yeah. Let me follow up a little with that, if I could. But we, uh, if I just can, uh, we, we sure. have, I, I don't remember the title, Massimo, we have some good research on that, eh? on uh, the uh, peaceful coexistence of... Uh, of uh, Yes, we had uh, produced in the past uh, uh, a handbook on uh, reconciliation and uh, the role of democratic institutions and another one on um, traditional justice, uh, especially in Africa with five case studies on the integration of traditional justice mechanisms for dealing with the past. Uh, your question was very interesting because you addressed the institutional elements that may be related uh, to the establish establishment of truth uh, and reconciliation commissions, for example, but also you raise the issue of how to deal with the memory. And in, uh, in Poland, for example, uh, they are dealing with uh, that uh, by creating, a, you know, by working really on the memory, on the memory of the past. Uh, there are, in fact, two, two, uh, two schools of thought, so to speak, about this, dealing with uh, form of transitional justice or, or rebuilding, reconstructing a space for dialogue through rethinking uh, about the past uh, in, in a continuous process. And there is no best answer to that because uh, if you have a, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for example, like in Sierra Leone, where there is a, an expectation by the victims to some sort of uh, uh, compensation mm -hmm. and they don't find that in practice because it would be too overwhelming and they see that the perpetrators uh, are actually uh, in a way uh, benefiting from certain programs ra like uh, for example um, uh, disarmament uh, and reintegration programs then you may create again more anger and a perception of being victimized a second time. So really, these are very, very sensitive and delicate processes where I think democracy uh, has a very important element to play because be it builds those institutions that you were referring to, which are institutions of dialogue, uh, and it builds spaces, public spaces, where former enemies can actually get back to talk to each other. And, and these are, in fact, the first institutions that in a violent conflict uh, are normally targeted, especially the, the moderate parts in, in a very polarized situations are those who are more vulnerable to immediate, uh, 
I would say, annihilation in, in a violent conflict. And that is what uh, needs to be rebuilt. Very, very difficult. Thank you, Massimo. Please. Hi, thank you. Uh, I'm Hugo Zilberberg. I'm also a student here uh, at the Kennedy School. Uh, building off uh, the social media question that was asked earlier, I wanted to, uh, m most of the challenges you, uh, you uh, emphasized uh, have as an underpinning uh, the development of cyberspace uh, and the idea that there's a, a, a space parallel to our world where citizens can exchange information. Um, I wanted to ask, since uh, it's a very new uh, dimension, uh, we have n we don't have re really an idea of what how our democratic values translate translate online. Uh, as an example for that, the free flow of, of information, for example, uh, in the United States, there's a strong view that the free, unhindered flow of information is uh, the, a democratic value that could be should be translated online. There's a lot of democracies who don't agree in the uni in the European Union. The right to be forgotten uh, is seen here as a, a threat for that. And there's also, as you mentioned, a lot of uh, other countries that uh, um, put more of a premium on stability than on the free flow of information. Uh, democracies in, in, in Africa could be, uh, could be seen as that. And, and it, it was seen in, in, a, in a global forums for, for internet governance where they actually advocated for uh, regulated, controlled flow of information. So how do, how do we take those democratic values that we have offline and how do we take them online when we have no unique democratic ideal uh, in, in, and we have a world without a global liter leadership to, uh, to do that? It's the question also of uh, global governance of, of uh, cyberspace, of course, and uh, some, um, some people, organizations, uh, have been tasked to, to draft proposals to work on that. Uh, until now, the result is, is, not so, uh, is not so convincing. I think it's very difficult. Uh, of course, whatever the, the tool for communication is uh, that is used, you have certain issues that um, well, certain legislation like, for instance, uh, against racism and, uh, and uh, revisionism and so on that have to be, uh, where there is a consensus that uh, these uh, have to be applied, but there will always be a clash between the, let's say, nation-related uh, implementation of that uh, kind of values and then the fact that we have an uh, de facto and an, an open cyberspace where it is even from a technical point of view sometimes very difficult to uh, to prevent uh, information from uh, flowing if it if it would be uh, good to prevent it from uh, circulating so uh, this is not a, a very convincing answer but it's reality it's very difficult to uh, and we are still building up. It's a good example where uh, technological, economic, but uh, moreover technological development is, is uh, uh, going faster than the democratic uh, legitimate uh, answers we can give to the, to the problems that have to be. Uh, it's only one domain where that is the case. We uh, have, have other ones, but, it, but it's certainly a good example where our democratic institutions and, and uh, the capacity we have to um, to control, to monitor, and so on, or or tested the limits of that, or or uh, shown, and our capacities are tested. Yeah. Hi, thanks for coming. Um, I'm Michael McKenzie. I'm a democracy fellow here at the Ash Center, and I'm wondering if I idea is doing any work on cataloging some of the new democratic institutions or participatory institutions like participatory budgeting or citizens' assemblies and these kinds of processes 
that are really being used all over the world now. Um, and currently we lack a good catalog of, of, of these kinds of institutions. And it seems to me that IDEA has been quite good at doing that kind of work in the past. And I'm wondering if you're doing any of that now. Um, we uh, might be involved. It's, it's, it's by coincidence that we launched this week, uh, at least in Brussels, we launched a book on uh, civil society and political parties, civil society and political decision making, and how uh, how political parties should address the uh, different structures and the way civil society organizes its, itself and then uh, develops. Uh, and there, uh, I know that the people that have uh, drafted that report have uh, lots of overviews and catalogs of all kinds of uh, examples and ways uh, of uh, new methods to the civil society is organizing itself. Not only civil society, also uh, uh, people winning elections starting from nothing, uh, like the, the Indian example there. Um, so yes, we have, we have evidence on that, yeah. And Michael, you're thinking of things like the citizens' assemblies and whether we have any kind of common database on yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah. Answer, trace, yeah. There are lots of different lots of different things. Yeah, but I thought you you were asking for uh, an overview of type typologies, the type of uh, or a classification, or so ah, we know yeah. where participatory efforts are going, what they're doing. Thank you. I'll stand up, I guess, because I'm the way back here. Um, it's actually a sort of similar question to what what you asked. Um, so. Uh, I'm well acquainted with the great work that International IDEA has done on the participation of women, ethnic minorities, indigenous groups in, uh, in, in democracy, especially in, um, in parliaments and, and elections. Um, but I was wondering about another politically excluded group that's a little bit different from the others, which is young people. Um, you know, and, and traditionally people have thought about youth political participation in terms of young people as voters, right? That's a lot of what has been done in terms of um, academic research, in terms of, um, I think, democratic programming. Um, but there's also the question about youth participation as elected representatives. Um, you know, we're seeing that there are a number of European political parties starting to, you know, introduce formal or informal quotas for young people on their list. Um, you have countries like Morocco, which are reserving seats in parliament for, for young people. Um, in Egypt, there's an article of the new constitution that's going to guarantee, supposed to, that the new electoral law will guarantee the presence of young people in local government. Um, and I'm wondering um, to whether International Ideas has been working on, on this issue, thinking about youth participation as representatives, not just as voters, um, or some work like that is, is on the horizon. We have currently two projects where that is part of um, the um, the content of the activity. It's uh, one together with the European Youth Forum, where some researchers will, um, well, there has been an assessment already, an analysis done, uh, why they tend to have a lower participation in, in the elections as, as voters. But uh, there is some work now um, that has been uh, carried out to see how to to improve the representation of young people, how to make them more uh, participating in, in uh, processes. The um, uh, second uh, project is uh, together with the Club de Madrid. It's uh, called the Next Generation Democracy. But that's, uh, that's very new. Uh, Madeleine, I think we have uh, notes about that, but that's very new. It's, uh, but one, one part of that is also to see how we can 
uh, try to improve the representation of uh, young generations, but it just started. Uh, it's just starting now. But these are two examples. Or so. Uh, yeah, we are trying to help with uh, research in that field. Yeah. And I think we just have time for maybe one, one or two. Please, you've been trying to come in. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Amandine Lobel. I'm a Belgian student at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, doing one of your talents to be Belgian. <laughs> doing um, a master in public policy, but actually grew up most of my life in the global south in, in Africa and in Asia. And so I was particularly interested in what you were saying about the north-south dynamics and, and how traditionally a conversation that has been very north-south is, is now more of a, of a two-way dialogue, uh, which I found very interesting. And I just wondered if you could expand a little bit about uh, on where you see these, these newer democracies in the global south really enriching the ideas, or you said, you mentioned that they were en enriching the, the conversation in the more developed uh, and sometimes more challenged democracies uh, in, in the north. I was wondering if you could just expand a little bit on, on what the key takeaways are there. Just to uh, first mention that in terms of membership already, we are a really quite uh, balanced organization. We have, uh, uh, I think of the 28 member states, we have uh, 12 to 14 uh, member countries from, from more the south, uh, including of course Australia, which is not a, really a developing country. But still we have uh, six uh, African member states, we have uh, some Latin America, Caribbean member states, uh, also Asian. In terms of organizing uh, democratic development, uh, what is very interesting is that some of them, uh, the most developed uh, in terms of democratic tradition, the most developed ones, they are also asking us to uh, organize platforms where they can, uh, let's say, promote uh, their achievements and the way they uh, develop democracy where they can promote it in, in countries where there's still uh, a lot of work to do. Uh, for instance, Chile is, is uh, Botswana. These are examples of uh, uh, current member states of international idea that uh, have no long tradition in terms of development aid, for obvious reasons, but that India also, but that really want to go out with their experience um, uh, in terms of uh, how they organize elections, how they organize uh, how the constitution was was built in there or changed in in their country um, and what we we see is that sometimes there are uh, they experience difficulties to do that in their immediate in the region where they are located for instance for uh, well to to go to nepal as indian people representing india go to nepal and say well you're in a kind of deadlock debate here about federalism and about uh, improving the quality of democracy this is very difficult because of the tensions with, uh, uh, well, between Nepal and India, but they are asking for possibilities to to spread their experience uh, all over, all over the globe and um, and also in triangular cooperation. Um, as far as the content is concerned, it's about multi-ethnicity, it's about inclusiveness, it's about the convergence between uh, social and economic development. Um, and social cohesion and uh, democratic participation. Um, it's about uh, uh, strengthening the role of, or organizing the role of civil society, uh, best practices they have in their own country and they, they want to share with, uh, with other places. Sometimes also the language is, uh, is a reason to uh, have a closer cooperation. Uh, for instance, I had recently talks with Brazilian people that want to share their good experience, they're very, um, 
well, cutting edge in terms of uh, organizing the electro process itself, in terms of using electronic tools and so on, and so on, and ICT tools. Uh, also, the way they report on the counting of votes, and they want to share that with Lusophone, with other Lusophone countries, and they use international idea to, to um, well, to find countries like Mozambique, Angola, uh, and so on, to to organize projects where they can share their their experience. So it's. Uh, that's the kind of uh, approach. Uh, yeah. Also in gender, you have some uh, examples of uh, countries of the South that uh, are in a good position to show how they organized uh, the, the, the gender balance of the representation. And participatory budgeting, which came across, also, of course, yeah. spread worldwide. So there are many initiatives uh, which really have started in the South and then spread in many other countries, um, including in established democracies. Well, I'm afraid we have run out of time for Can our I just add a, formal. Add a couple of Please, words there. Last, last thoughts. Last remark is that um, what, what is a matter of concern to us is that you see that some countries that during, let's say, 15, 20, 30 years went through a very impressive, um, let's say, uh, phase of progress in terms of democratic governance that you see uh, some striking examples of uh, where some of these countries um, facing lots of problems and challenges uh, like for instance South Africa like I already mentioned Brazil and Chile uh, with sometimes an enormous volatility and so this is uh, this is really a matter of concern uh, countries like Mali that were moving forward and then totally yeah, destabilized yeah, yeah. for instance yeah, yeah, yeah it's a mixed bag basically I, I don't think it's clearly that every country has been progressing in an inevitable way that we thought of in the early 90s, but that was too rosy mm -hmm. as an assumption anyway. It was it's ridiculous to talk about the end of history. It's not linear. Sequence, yeah. But at the same time, to talk about recession is, is dr dramatizing things too much yeah. the other way. There are lots of things going on in lots of countries which aren't that visible, even though some are visible. So I'd really like to thank, in particular, the Secretary General for a marvelous and very thought-provoking talk. A lot of the themes are going to be ones that we're going to continue. I wouldn't be surprised if you did get some CVs from colleagues here <laughs> who would like to work as interns and, and staff in International Idea. I'm such an admirer of your organization, I just wanted to end with. Every time I look at any of the issues which I'm most interested in, there is an interna International Idea handbook, tool, guide. To give you a very simple example, when I was working for UNDP and I went to Nepal and peace was breaking out five years ago and suddenly there was all sorts of new options for an election. And I said to them on behalf of UNDP, what can we do to help the electoral commissioner? And he says, no, we're fine. And he pointed to the International Idea Handbook already there in Nepalese. Um, we, we, were are totally still there. we are still there. Still there. That's part of the problem. Things are still going on, I know. <laughs> haven't yet got through. But basically, wherever there's a challenge, International Idea has expertise, has uh, guidelines, has ways of working, which is a wonderful resource for the international community, and the only intergovernmental organization with that focus. Lots of others do bits of one thing and another, but International Idea does it all. So thank you very much, Secretary General, for coming thank to you. visit us. We really appreciate it. There thank is you. now drinks and, and some foods and nibbles as well. So we're welcome to, again, talk individually to the Secretary General. But let me thank you very much on behalf thank of you. Harvard for coming to our visit. Thank you. Thank you.